This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome all on the road to nowhere. Over the course of this series, we will be revisiting and examining Wes Craven's controversial first feature, The Last House on the Left. I'm your host, R.C. Jara. Join me on a trip through unrepentant villainy as we parse through the details of the film's inception, release, and what makes it an enduring work in the horror genre. Trigger warning. This series covers the mutilation and rape as shown in The Last House on the Left, as well I will be covering the harrowing accounts by crew members of when pantomime violence on set turned into actual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Horror films are a bastion of psychological freedom. If you were a lover of horror, Wes Craven was the man of your dreams. In his mind sat the stuff of nightmares, lurking from page to screen, meeting generations of audiences face to face with the beasts of his creation. Horror fans know Wes Craven's authorial voice like the one inside our own heads. We instantly recognize the malice hiding behind a veneer of politeness embodied by the villain, and the constant weariness of authority figures felt by our protagonist. By first-hand accounts of the people who knew him, Craven presented himself as a remarkably cultivated person with a soft-spoken kindness. None of those qualities are antithetical to being a horror fan or horror creative. Still, what has always struck me about the man looking through old interviews is his honesty. Craven is generous with his insight and open to talking about his life experiences. As a part of the horror community, I appreciate these same qualities in people. We all come from a multitude of backgrounds, yet the universality of the genre is border-breaking. In piecing together how the maestro found a career in the Devil's Cinematic Playground, I hope to bring us all closer to the inner revelation that was his first film. Wes Craven was born on August 2, 1939 in Cleveland, Ohio. He and his siblings' working-class upbringing reflected an extended family of coal miners and quarry workers. Their father, Paul Eugene Craven, was a truck driver while his mother Caroline cleaned houses and took in ironing during the war. In 1945, the Craven household faced a devastating loss. At a factory where Paul worked, he suffered a heart attack. Now being raised by his widowed mother, young Wes and his siblings were left without the presence of a second authority figure in their lives. That is, of course, if you don't count the Lord above. By his own account, Wes's parents converted to fundamentalist Christianity not long before his father's passing. As a family, the Cravens attended a Baptist church where they had a robust community to lean on for support after the tragedy, and the beliefs and practices shared by this community impressed upon Carolyn a strict parenting style, to say the least. Not only were the children brought up against the usual vices like smoking and drinking, they were encouraged from doing so under the impression that they would go to hell. According to John Woolley, author of Wes Craven's biography, The Man and His Nightmares. The concept of hell was painted so vividly in the mind of young Wes that it terrified him. The book insinuates Wes likely wasn't taken by religion the way others were in his church, but that visions of brimstone structures and lapping tongues of fire were enough to grab his imagination. After all, where would your mind go as a child being told that any deviation from the church resulted in such a horrific eternal punishment? Needless to say, Films were banned by the church. Anything that wasn't Disney-related in the Craven household was held to a sacrilegious standard equivalent to smoking and drinking. 
An avid reader, young Wes Craven fed his curiosity for the world outside the confines of the House of Mouse through the poetry of Ovid, as well as the works of Joseph Campbell, to name a few. This love of literature manifested in the pursuit of an English and psychology degree as an undergrad at Wheaton College, a Christian school where he was put under the same moral bind. Movies there were considered a sin. Even on his own as a young adult, he could not escape the trappings of his fundamentalist upbringing, but that didn't stop Craven, then in his senior year, from sneaking out to visit a local theater for a screening of a film that would change his life. He shares this profound experience in a 2010 episode of Postmortem with fellow filmmaker Mick Garris. So I would have been expelled if I had been caught. I hitchhiked to the next town and, and saw To Kill a Mockingbird. And literally that was like the epiphany for me. It was like, if this is considered sin, they got to be wrong. <laughs> so uh, that was my beginning of my exit. It is ironic that the forbidden world of cinema inspired more devotion in the young Wes Craven than any preacher sermon ever could. This love of cinema followed him to grad school, where he and his first wife Bonnie went out to see films made by rogue auteurs like Louise Buñuel, Francois Truffaut, and perhaps more importantly, Ingmar Bergman. Craven also put together a successful Mission Impossible spoof with a film club comprised of his own students. This must have validated his creative ambitions because he moved to New York to chase them not long after he left his PhD program. Craven picked up several teaching jobs across the state to support his family, and they were starting to become a drag. Bouncing from a college in Potsdam, New York, Craven finally settled on a job at a high school in St. Lawrence County once it became clear that his pursuit of film stalled indefinitely. After staking three months of pay from his last college job, and briefly working as a taxi driver, things began to turn around in 1971. He landed a gig at a production office with future collaborator Sean S. Cunningham. They worked on the project together. Together is a sexploitation film produced with a $100,000 budget put up by Boston production company Hallmark Releasing. As Craven recalls, We were in this great uh, building. Uh, it was, we all call it 56 West 45th, which is what it was, but that uh, sort of became the name of the place. It was a building that had a lot of documentary film companies in it. And somebody told me there was this guy, Sean Cunningham, back in the building who was looking for somebody to sync up dailies. And so I went in, met him, and, uh, you know, kind of struck it off right away. Um, and I got this minor job on a film Sean was doing with a filmmaker named Roger Murphy. And uh, these two guys in this tiny office were making a kind of a pseudo-documentary that they had made up. Um, and... Uh, Shot it like a documentary, but everything about it was fabricated. And they had just done a reshoot. So I came in and um, sunk up the dailies. And we all kind of hit it off. And I ended up just being kept on. Hallmark Releasing was pleased by what they considered to be a successful film, and thus financed Cunningham's next project, to which Craven was attached as writer-director. Now, Wes Craven found a niche working within the wacky world of hardcore. Cutting pornos was his bread and butter in the years between Last House on the Left and The Hills Have Eyes, although he may or may not have directed at least one porno under the pseudonym Abe Snake. That's Abe as in Abe Lincoln, and Snake as in Snake Plissken. And by may or may not have, I mean it's 100% a Wes Craven film that he 100% disowned. The Fireworks Woman is a supernatural incest drama about a woman named Angela, played by Jennifer Jordan, who has sexual mind powers. Without any regard for my search history, I've looked high and low for this thing, but the best I could find is an audio of a scene Craven himself shares with Jordan, which comes from a YouTube movie review by Sean Blumenshine. In the following scene, 
Craven plays a devilish figure called Nicholas Burns, who offers Angelo a way out of the struggles resulting from her abilities. The audio is a little choppy, and is as follows. Of course, now I'm perfectly willing to help. I'm gonna have to pay a price. Okay. No way! Who are you? No one special. By all accounts, the film is quite shocking. It features a brutal rape scene that puts Last House to shame, and exudes a consistently mean-spirited atmosphere throughout. Some folks argue that the film is an early showcase of the authorial voice that would define Craven's work later on, and even view it as a crucial stepping stone between his first two officially released horror films. But I digress. Craven was finally where he needed to be, and he was ready to make a move. Cunningham recognized this drive, and proposed that they make a horror film together. The proposal went like this. When he was offered the chance to do another film for these people that had financed the previous film, he came to me and said, you know, you say you want to be a director. These guys up in Boston want uh, a scary movie now for, for their theaters. He had contacts with a group of theater owners in Boston that actually funded their own second bills, you know. So if they got a, a commercial film in and they needed something to run as a second bill with it, they would fund it themselves. He said, all you need to do is write something that they like. If they like it, you can direct it. In fact, you can cut it. I have a steam back. You and I will make it. And that was, that was how we got to know each other and how we got to, to make the movie. The cogs began to turn, and the world of U.S. independent cinema was not prepared for what would come out of the depths of Craven's psyche. Recalling a conversation with Cunningham before any writing took place, he was told by the producer, You were raised as a fundamentalist. Just pull all the skeletons out of your closet. So he did. Written in 1971 under its original title, The Night of Vengeance, the last house on the left follows the rape and murder of two young women by a gang of escaped criminals. Their deaths are then avenged by the aggrieved parents of one of the women over the course of an excruciatingly violent night. The story takes inspiration from the 1960 Ingmar Bergman film The Virgin Spring, which itself uses the medieval Swedish ballad Torres Dotar Ivanga as a basis for the script written by Ulla Isaksson. Craven talks about its influence on postmortem. What's a good plot? And I thought The Virgin Spring was such a remarkably concise and tight and ironic story. Uh, and I think, by the way, Bergman thought that because it was a it was a centuries-old uh, myth uh, or part of their folklore in, in his area of the world that he borrowed it for his movie. So, uh, yeah, I borrowed the basic story outline um, and the sort of reverse of you know the straight and narrow parents, very religious father turning and becoming quite vicious and, uh, you know, completely beyond the law and, and taking revenge. The Virgin Spring is set in the 13th century, and it follows the rape and murder of Karen, daughter of devout Christians Torre and Marita, at the hands of three herdsmen. By the end, Torre kills each man in horrific fashion. Haunted by what he's done, he vows to build a church at the site where his daughter was taken from him. Christianity is a significant driver in Bergman's work, Given Craven's religious upbringing, it isn't far-fetched to assume that he found clarity in the idea of a Christian redemption arc. However, Torre's act of transgression, followed by repentance, did not make Craven a God-fearing evangelist. Instead, the filmmaker sees this grim Scandinavian tale for his own exploration of the monstrosity hiding within the walls of a picturesque nuclear household, and as a reflection of the violent world outside. Apart from what we know of The Last House on the left and all its controversies, it's worth investigating the key drivers of Craven's own mind as a storyteller. 
His creative imagination was no doubt a product of voracious reading habits, but one cannot ignore the impact of the social settings in which Craven came of age. He had lost a parent while the country was still at war, grew up amidst nuclear tensions between the US and USSR, and had fully grown into adulthood as the country waged its destructive powers overseas yet again in Vietnam. To hear it from Craven himself, People always ask me, how does a nice, quiet person like yourself, you know, think up these ideas? And my answer always is, uh, who says I think them up? I mean, look around you, you know. I think that we tend to filter out a great deal of the horror of life or to sort of trivialize it to make it acceptable. Whereas if you really uh, keep your eyes open or just listen to the news uh, or uh, read newspapers or read history, uh, there's a tremendous amount of real life horror in this world. And I just seem to be attuned to it. It affects me. The filmmaker knew how powerful violent imagery could be, and harnessed the spirit of the times to make a film that in some respect was a culmination of the angst he'd carried with him all his life. To construct a story in which there is no closure and no god was probably more of a head trip than anybody was expecting. What eventually became The Last House on the Left began life as a hybrid porno horror film. The cast, mostly on board with shooting a hardcore picture, included Fred Lincoln, a well-regarded figure of the porn industry as Fred Weasel Podowski. Sex was one thing. Though Cunningham found success in titillating audiences before, his leads usually kept all their parts intact by the end. Not a single person among the cast and crew was truly prepared for the carnage in Craven's script, which was apparently so powerful that you didn't even need to be on set to feel its visceral nature. Story goes, when Cunningham attempted to procure mimeographed copies of the script, the process stalled. The place that was typing up the script was behind schedule, delivering it to us, and Sean was like screaming at them and something. And then he came in and says, "You know what? They're um, they're ready now." And I went over and I said, "Why is it taking so long?" He says, "Because everybody that types a page passes it around to everybody else because they everybody wants to see what the next page is in the script." And it was just one of those page turners. Um, not that it was great literature. I think it was just so compelling and, and riveting and. <laughs> I mean, it's like you can't, you can't imagine you're reading what you're reading and you cannot stop reading, I think, is, is how it affected people. And, you know, translated to film, I think it has the same effect. What keeps this film grounded is the sense of experimentation. I couldn't speculate on the imagery that Craven's script must have evoked in people who read it for the first time, but the director chose a visual aesthetic that was both practical for the budget that he was working with and conducive to a horrifying experience. Morbid as it might sound... The cinematic language for The Last House on the Left was developed by Craven from the point of view of a child listening in on adults as they talked. Inspiration for this shooting style is directly pulled from the memories of his own childhood. He tells Garris on Postmortem. I think I, th I thought of myself, I, um, if I were a child, a five-year-old child in a room, this is how I always looked at it, and, you know, the adults are talking and somebody's getting a fight and, you know, argument, whatever it is, and, or they're picking up something or... Where would you stand to see it? Mm. And I didn't think beyond that, really. I just thought, where would, where would I want to be to see what, you know? And I think part of it was like being a, a child in a house where uh, my parents fought and, and mm. separated and divorced, and there was a lot of kind of terrible drama, and I can remember hiding but looking, you know. At times, the film's blocking truly looks as though you've wandered into a scene full of psychopaths in the woods. I've actually walked the grounds on Poplar Plains Cemetery in Westport, Connecticut. Whatever kind of sick curiosity led younger me to stalk around a place like that, I don't know. I guess I was just excited to visit one of horror's hallowed grounds for myself. 
but I can say from experience that there's this paralyzing chill that comes from just existing incognito on what is basically a murder site. Using an internet guide beforehand, I was able to make out the spot by the pond where Phyllis, one of the film's victims, meets her end. It's not a pleasant trip. And once the grip that held me there let go, I ran to my car. On the drive home is where I really started thinking about the film and the voice behind it. Angry, loud, discontent. In a 1985 interview with Christopher Sherritt titled Fairy Tales for the Apocalypse, Craven reveals that's exactly where he found himself mentally when making Last House. He says there is a rage at the center of all his work. In his words, the film was a primal scream, a rebuke of violent U.S. culture as he saw it, and the confines of the professional life he'd been living up to that point. In the same interview, he talks about his own film being a continuation of a new attitude brewing in the underbelly of U.S. cinema. You'd had the start of the invasion of hippies in Hollywood cranking out cynical masterpieces one after another, but the violence in Craven's film shook the horror genre at a time when film culture was constantly reworking itself for a new generation. This is difficult to do in any medium, but the critical machine was stacked against horror films, which were generally regarded as unserious save for a few critical darlings. If we're being real, The Last House on the Left is rough. An upsetting, powerful experience for some, but rough. It's nothing that you can invite into your home and expect to greet you with erudite conversation. It's nasty, it's mean. Admittedly, nobody who was working on it knew what they were doing. And there are so many cuts of this thing floating around, it's a miracle that even one survived long enough to get a decent release nowadays, let alone three. I've had serious film people roll their eyes at me whenever I've brought it up in conversation. I've had people refuse to look at me in the eye after they sought it out based on how I talked about it. And I'm perfectly fine with these things. What I am concerned with is how a film like this escapes into theaters and into pop culture, and why its DNA can still be found in films made today. I do not believe it is a fluke. Wes Craven has proven time and again to be a thoughtful filmmaker that has more than enough classics under his belt. And if the end product of a Craven film doesn't satisfy some or doesn't come together in certain ways, at the very least his philosophy for horror filmmaking remains intact. Save for maybe something like Music of the Heart. He tells Mick Garris. I, I won't show stupidity, lack of imagination, disrespect for the audience. <laughs> Something that somebody else has already done better. I think that it's valid to make those movies in, in your early career. And uh, I, I don't think there's ever a reason to be uh, merciful towards your audience. <laughs> you know, I mean, they want you to grab them by the throat and, and keep them there for an hour and a half or, or whatever. But... You're always following your own inner guidelines. I mean, there are no rules for making these films. There's no laws among ourselves, you know, as fellow genre filmmakers, horror filmmakers. One guy will make a film that somebody else might look at and say, that's, that's really, not, that's despicable. Yeah, you know? no, absolutely. If you find The Last House on the Left despicable, you're not alone. But what Craven is getting at in that clip is central to investigating how different horror films land with different people. And it's worth keeping in mind that the man who had such a disinterest in living a pious life nonetheless dedicated himself to telling stories that act as parables for turbulent eras. Knowing a bit more about the man whose films define several decades of horror helped me understand why I connected to his films in the first place. Though I must admit, there is a dangerous quality to the approach he took on his first feature. During the shoot of The Last House on the Left, both Craven and Cunningham operated like madmen. This was Craven's first feature with zero oversight and total creative power to do whatever he wanted to bring his script to life. It was an awakening. 
There was a freedom to it that the filmmaker would hardly ever see again after the 1970s. In the muck of fake blood and guts, it must have been difficult to foresee what, if anything, would come out of this chaotic production. Craven and company crossed more than a few boundaries making the picture, with some on the crew questioning whether it was all going too far. But there he was, practically butchering people in the nascent stages of his career. Every decision he'd ever made drove him to this place behind the camera. Neither he nor Cunningham had any idea what havoc their dinky little exploitation project would wreak upon its release. Next episode, as we dig further into the grimy details of the shoot, we will be looking at how The Last House on the Left fits into a 20th century artistic paradigm known as postmodernism. Postmodernism is a valuable lens through which the film's cultural significance can be viewed, and is a marker that signifies the start of an era of horror filmmaking wholly different from what came before. Thank you for joining me on the road to nowhere. I've been your host, R.C. Jara. See you on the other side, friends. And remember... Avoid fainting. Keep repeating. It's only a movie. 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 This has been a production of the Anatomy of a Scream podcast network. Anatomy of a Scream examines horror using a feminist and queer positive perspective. For more wonderful writing and podcasts, please visit anatomyofascream.wordpress.com. The Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad.